Silicon Valley has long had an uneasy relationship with media. Look no further than the fraught relationship publishers have with Facebook and Google. Sometimes it seems like the two sides are barely talking the same language. I'm Brian Morrissey, and this is the Digiday Podcast. In this episode, I'm joined by Hunter Walk, who is a partner at early-stage venture firm Homebrew and has invested in media businesses like The Skim, Shutter, and more. Hunter is the rare person who speaks fluently both the languages of Silicon Valley and the media industry. So I wanted to have Hunter on for an insider view from the West Coast and to get his take on investing in the media business. I also get his uh, views on platforms like Facebook and Google and what it means to have them trying to quote-unquote help the media. Hope you enjoy it. Hunter, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. You don't have investors on often. Uh, no, I don't. How did I make it? Well, because I like what you talk about with media and I'm also trying to get like different points of view because I get a lot of uh, media executives mm -hmm. grousing about platforms. Um, so hat on um, Richard Jingris from, right. uh, from Google. Hopefully Campbell Brown is going to be coming on okay. in, in the fall. So I want to broaden it out a little bit. That's excellent. Um, and so I wanted to get your view sort of as a visitor from Silicon Valley um, you say that sort of like, you know, they just discovered like water on Mars. Like, yeah, I no, you're an, I was surprised you're an alien. You're an alien from Silicon Valley. It's 90 I grew up out here. It's 90 degrees outside, but you're, I, I want everyone to know you're not wearing a fleece vest. So there is a lot of stereotypes that are, are being broken down here. But there is this drumbeat all of a sudden of bad news. Um, and Silicon Valley as a whole is getting beat up. You know, Facebook, I think, had the sort of biggest single sell off. They're getting hauled before congressional committees. Their, their stock crashed to levels not seen in seven months. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Silicon Valley is always, you know, the land of, of, of optimism. Is, is there sort of a bit of a reality check going on uh, over there as far as, um, look, this is a broad question, but, you know, building all these platforms and connecting the world and everything like this, there's much more focus on the negativity right now, externally at least. Mm -hmm. I am, so I am an eternal optimist for technology because I believe ultimately what it does access to information, distributes ability uh, uh, of creation and empowerment, I think uh, the gravitational pull is in a positive direction. What I think is happening right now, and I think it's very healthy, and I think it's part of a broader uh, questioning of inequality, questioning of power, questioning of institutions, is Silicon Valley is partially embracing and partially being challenged to embrace um, the responsibility it has. Um, tech for so long was an underdog. Mm -hmm. It was the weird folks who were in the basement typing away at computers, just trying to change the world. And somewhere along the way, as market caps, as user bases, as uh, employee counts uh, have all grown, um, we evolved from you know sort of the underdog to the incumbent industry. You know, software from a vertical to software powering every industry. And I think in some cases, our sense of self uh, lags that reality, still feel like the underdog, just trying to change the world. Um, you know, but as, uh, with great power comes great responsibility, I guess. And um, I'm pleased that uh, the industry as a whole is being asked to consider that responsibility. How about Facebook in particular? Um, Facebook's obviously in the spotlight uh, quite a bit uh, these days, and sometimes negatively so. Um, do you think that from the top, they're really truly starting to embrace the responsibility that comes with their gigantic role? 
in society. Yeah, it was great because I, you know, I spent nine years working at Google where I, you know, I could never talk publicly about Facebook, but now that I'm out of Google, I can say whatever I want about anybody, right? Yeah. Look, I think all these companies are starting to understand the questions they should be asking themselves. Uh, sometimes that comes from internal, sometimes that comes from external. Are they moving as quickly as possible to the answers? I think sometimes they're letting the um, complexity of the debate uh, get in the way of decision-making. So when you say, well, if we're going to change this policy, we have to change it universally and let's debate all the corner cases. I think in order to gain and restore trust with employee bases, with, with customers, with regulators, it's important to be clear about what you stand for, the values you stand for, and then try to implement them as consistently as possible. When I was leading product at YouTube, we knew we had responsibilities above and beyond the minimum legal set of things we had to abide by. And we had policy councils to discuss these things, and we didn't always get it right. But we were willing to make decisions and publish those decisions, in some cases stand by them uh, when they were unpopular, in other cases revisit them. Um, and so I think it's important to do this stuff um, thoughtfully, mm -hmm. but also iteratively and publicly um, because... Mm -hmm. But that's a different. I mean, that, that's a difference in, you know, the whole move fast and break things and often cut corners when it comes to laws and regulations. I mean, we've seen it uh, with Uber, for instance, and... I think it, it seems to me like Silicon Valley oftentimes does do that because it, it, it prizes speed and innovation over thoughtfulness and iteration. Well, I think also there's a um, historically sometimes a disconnection from um, some of the communities that are being most affected by your choices. Uh, yeah. And so as the teams grow diverse, as these companies become more international and it's uh, as tech companies hopefully look less white, less male, you know, less a feeder from five or six different academic institutions, you know, mm -hmm. into a single campus, you know, in California. Um, I hope that they'll be able to not just diagnose, but anticipate some of these issues quicker. But when you're touching a billion people, two billion people, you know, even an error rate of 1% in your policy enforcement, you know, means that you're going to create thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of errors. And so mm -hmm. some of it is understanding that like, despite the immense um, success these companies have had financially, uh, very often the decisions are not, um, you know, 12 years planned out in advance with a set of dominoes falling just right. It's people with, you know, partial information, good intent, trying to make the best call in the moment. Mm -hmm. I look at some of the things YouTube has been struggling with over the last year or two, and it's not like those issues, you know, YouTube is now what, uh, they started in 2005, so 13 years old or so. Yeah. The challenges that they're dealing with now were not problems that we saw on the platform in year three that we did a you know, fantastic job of obfuscating and you know, pushing back under the rug for 10 years and only now are they growing. You know, they were sort of like- They've always been there. Year 10, year 11 problems. Well, no, I don't, like right? this question, when I was there, so the years I was there were sort of 07 to 2011, and content quality meant um, dogs on skateboards, not <laughs> uh, controversial political topics. Right. In fact, if we were anything, we were too optimistic that the idea that anybody with their camera phone could record what was happening in front of them and upload it to a, essentially a global TV network meant that truth, that it was essentially a platform for truth because mm -hmm. bef you know, before it was, you know, video production was only in the hands of a few. It hit the editing room, you know, before it hit the TV screen and it could lag production by hours, days, weeks. Now you had the ability for anybody 
I went to Baghdad for a week to, to understand how YouTube was being used there. Mm-hmm. You could have a teenager in a war zone streaming footage about what was really happening on the ground. It seemed to be an incredible platform for exposing lies, for telling the truth. And now they're dealing with the fact that, you know, in some cases it's being manipulated the other way. Right. Well, I, what I wonder, and maybe it's, it's this is crudely sort of New York versus Silicon Valley because we're more cynical here and uh, I'm a journalist. So I'm I was going to say, is it the geo or the I'm, profession? I'm an edge case. <laughs> you know, in building these platforms, there's been this unbridled optimism. It connects the world. It's, you know, it, it does these things and it, it absolutely does that. But there tends not to be enough like cynicism about how these tools will ultimately be used. And I wonder how that ends up getting balanced. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I know Kara Swisher did, um, which was a really good podcast. And I thought Mark Zuckerberg was actually really thoughtful about some of the issues. And I think, you know, his unfortunate analogy uh, with uh, Holocaust deniers, mm-hmm. I think overshadowed what overall was to me a, a very interesting discussion. Um, but not thinking through the fact that Okay, we're going to put live video in, in the hands of of you know billions of people, and you know people are going to use it to 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 film you know all sorts of horrible things mm-hmm. and broadcast it. That just seems like wait, why would you not think about that? Well, I mean, look, I don't, I don't know the product development process of Facebook. I can tell you when we shipped live video at YouTube, we did it incrementally. We started with making it first available to partners, so people we had a commercial relationship with. It was our goal to open it up to every account. What we did from there, as we were build, as we were understanding how it was being used, building different types of user flagging and review processes for live video, which would be different than video that was, you know, uploaded, you know, asynchronously to to YouTube um, onto the platform. We then made it available to what we said were accounts in good standing, so accounts that had been on the platform and didn't have any policy strikes. So they had, we had some level of experience with them that they understood the rules of engagement on YouTube and how the platform should be used. We had that for a period before we opened it up to the idea that anybody with a new account could start live streaming right away. So I would sort of challenge the notion that these platforms don't think about some of these those things. And um, in our case, at least, you know, tried to make incremental steps that created, you know, uh, in some cases, uh, user disappointment for trying to take a measured approach to it. Now, would we have waited um, before shipping live video for coming up with a foolproof way to make sure that you know the hundred different ways of terrible things that could be done with live video were preventable? I don't know. I think then you're punishing you know the other 99.999% of people who are doing interesting things with it. Um, and so we sort of had this mantra on abuse um, of those types of things, which said, uh, "Fool us once, you know, shame on you. Fool us twice, shame on shame on us." Mm-hmm. So let's trust let's trust people, and let put the systems in place to make sure that if somebody proves to not be trustworthy, um, we don't get fooled again. An area where I think these companies have up until maybe the last 12, 18 months under-resourced is that um, policy, abuse, uh, customer support areas, things that maybe um, don't scale with just technology, but where you do need people to help make a judgment call. And you know, when Susan from YouTube talks about hiring thousands of more content reviewers, I think that's a very positive step. It's a positive step in two ways. First, it's a signal from these companies that they're willing to spend margin points on um, uh, content review, on policy enforcement. And the second thing is that it's, it's an admission that no matter how many of the world's brightest technologists they mm-hmm. have there, and certainly there's incredibly smart people at Facebook, at Apple, at YouTube, at Google, um, that the last the last mile problem yeah, might be. Yeah, it's human. not all AI. Yeah, it can't be. I mean, that was the, the a lot of the brand safety controversies with YouTube. Um, I mean, I was a little cynical about because 
this has been going on for years. I mean, I think we wrote like five, six years ago, like this beheading video is brought to you by Toyota. And Toyota was coming to us and was like, how can, how, how did this get on there? And, you know, because of the complex programmatic ad system, like everybody can like blame everybody else. Um, it's interesting that all of a sudden it came to, yeah, you know, look, I'm, I'm a, I'm a child of New York city, which means I consumed a lot of media growing up. I remember, um, when I open up the New York times, there can be an article about something terrible and a Tiffany ad next to it. Uh, when I turn on the news and I'm watching, uh, my 6 PM newscast, there can be, you know, a horrible story. And then they go to commercial break and Buick is trying to sell me a car. And um, I, as a consumer, don't associate Buick with ISIS because of that. And so I think transparency is good. I think giving advertisers understanding and control is good. But I also think, uh, you know, that sometimes we overreact to, you know, sort of a notion of what brand safety means. And we sort of um, underestimate the consumer's ability to, you know, understand what they're viewing. I worked on AdSense for three years before. Um, oh, YouTube. So that, that dealt with so, it all the time. Yeah. So during the early days, I remember Overture used to send me, um, the, the, uh, the suitcase ad, suitcase the ad. Yeah, exactly. The, the, uh, so I have some experience with the, what, the head was found in a suitcase or something. It was, it was, it was some sort of <laughs> terribly violent news story that, that like suitcase. triggered, you know, triggered like luggage and vacation ads. And so, you know, and, but over time, I mean, you don't hear about that anymore. Right. And it's not because AdSense is a smaller business than it was in 2006. You know, it's probably an order of magnitude larger, but it's because, um, the technology continued to get better. And I also think, um, we understand that, you know, consumers don't uh, sometimes have the same reaction that a CMO does um, if given, you know, one example of, you know, millions and millions of impressions. So, every, you know, I, I, look, everyone should work together on these things. But um, I think sometimes the sometimes the screenshot is uh, right. is worse than the actual problem at hand. Quick break to tell you about Digiday Plus. Each week, I invariably talk to publishers who are always going on about how they're diversifying their businesses and often adding in subscriptions. Well, we are no different. Digiday Plus is our premium membership program for people in media, marketing, tech, even if you're an adventure. Ugh. Digiday Plus is our premium membership program for people in media, marketing, tech, even if you're a venture capitalist like Hunter. Here's how it works. Digiday Plus members get access to exclusive content. Each day we have pieces only available for them, along with invites to our member events, early access to this podcast, exclusive research we do on top industry trends, and much more. It is worth it, I promise you. Please visit digiday.com and you will see the Plus tab. Digiday Plus membership is $395 a year, but if you use podcast at checkout, you will get 20% off. Please check it out. Uh, you talk with media people, media executives, people running media businesses. Uh, what do they typically get wrong about Silicon Valley? Oh, wow. That's an interesting question. Because for me, the path not taken, I have incredible respect for journalism. But not journalists. No, no, like no, no, any no not, not your respect. Like no, any profession. I, I mean, I mean <laughs> like that, that, I mean like people running media businesses when, because I mean, a lot of them come on this podcast and they blame a, a lot of the their current struggles on mm. decisions that are made um, on the West Coast. I think one, so we, we referred to this a little bit earlier. I think sometimes there's assumptions that uh, because these companies have been so successful that the strategies or the way the strategies have played out um, were completely premeditated. You know, that like Google... Google had some notion about how the interworkings of AdSense, AdWords, and search 
would you know slowly boil the news industry and make it dependent upon yeah. you know where, where you where you where you rank on the page ones of search results or things like that and um, you know, it's, it's not that elegant. There's, I heard your conversation with, with Richard at Google news. And I mean, there are, there are beliefs in, in Silicon Valley or were beliefs in Silicon Valley. Information wants to be free, so on and so forth. The question about, um, you know, uh, how to handle paywalls and search results and stuff that, you know, did have secondary tertiary effects on, um, the potential adoption of new business models, you know, aggregation, uh, you know, switching to an ad supported only model for a while for some of these news newspapers. Um, but sometimes I think that just comes from it comes from lack of understanding of these industries uh, in Silicon, Silicon Valley, having lack of understanding of these industries rather mm -hmm. than some sort of sort of Machiavellian scheme. Well, talk to me about that the the other way then, mm -hmm. um, and how uh, people in Silicon Valley don't truly get the the media world. I think that there's the the belief that content will find a way, right? That if you create a level playing field, which all these platforms think they are that you know, organizations will adapt quickly towards new realities. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, especially in industries that have been successful doing one thing one way for a very long time, um, the incentive is to continue to make that work. It's hard to disrupt yourself. Mm -hmm. And I think um, a lot of industries underestimate the speed at which uh, technology change mm -hmm. can um, impact you know, your business. But I mean, Jonah Peretti was on here and, you know, if there's any media company that has, it, to me, just I, that has adopted all of these precepts that come from Silicon Valley, it would be like BuzzFeed. Mm -hmm. And he was saying, you would think we would be making a lot more money considering we've aggregated these gigantic audiences on these platforms. And yet. Uh, well, I'm in, in, and, the, and the question being. <laughs> well, I mean, like. It, it, you can't just like blame it on like, you know, traditional media companies doing traditional things. I mean, anyone in the media industry is, is struggling to make money off of gigantic audiences that they aggregate on platforms. But at the same time, I mean, at least over the last few years, and you look at the FT, you look at the times, you look at people who have um, returned to the idea that you yeah. know, their content is valuable enough for people to pay for it. You look for some of the brands that have, um, used content and don't think that they're in the URL business. They think they're in the audience business. Um, one of our investments, the skim, you know, thinks of themselves as a audience business, a membership business. Um, and that's been very successful for them over the last five, six years of their life. So I guess I, I guess I'd say that it's, it's possible that the atomic unit of a URL widely distributed, mm -hmm. um, has, uh, uh, for several years, declining value, and now maybe, you know, asymptoted value. But the eyeball behind that is actually more valuable than ever if you have a relationship with that user. If they understand the byline and the brand behind the URL, if they want to connect and identify with you in real life via commerce, via right. events. Like true audience businesses, not like unique visitor businesses. Yeah, I mean, I think we, you know, you've had some people on the podcast over the last few years, and we've all seen a lot of businesses that crowed about their reach, um, but it was you know drive-by traffic that came right. from a, a headline shared across social, maybe read once, and I'm not sure aided or unaided that you know quote unquote site visitor or or unique user. Uh, could have ever remembered where it came from. Mm -hmm. um, or, well, they weren't building brands. Yeah. You know, I think that and, was... And, I mean, so that doesn't look any different than, you know, what a 
what a CEO a hundred years would have told you ago about, you know, building a brand and knowing who your audience is um, and selling them product. So you've invested in a couple of media businesses. Mm -hmm. The Skim, uh, Cheddar, Anchor. Uh, they all think of themselves as various degrees of media businesses. I think they would describe, you know, some of them would describe themselves differently. Uh, John Steinberg from Cheddar might be the one to embrace it most. <laughs> right. Um, but yeah, so we look, we look for uh, a few things in those cases. Um, founders who are uh, perfect matches for what they're building. We believe in founder market fit. Sometimes you hear Silicon Valley talk about product market fit, the idea that a product has found its right customer. We invest pre-product market fit. So we have to think about founder market fit. Is, are these founders the right people to build this type of business? Carly and Danielle for the skim, clearly. John for Cheddar, clearly. Um, we think about whether their audience is underserved. So if they're just another place trying to create content where there's nine, 10, 20 other choices for that audience, and you're trying to change that audience behavior, trying to say, hey, I'm better than the other 10 places you're already going, that's less interesting to us than people who have a point of view about an underserved audience or an underserved channel. In Carly and Danielle's case, it uh, was was women, especially millennial women. Um, in John's case, it's the belief on over the top and you know what's happening to the aging audiences on cable TV and who's not watching those, mm -hmm. namely you know anybody under fifty. Um, and um, and then the ability to I'd sort of let's call it create a big tent from a company perspective. So all of the companies we invest in have strong product leads, strong engineering leaders, but um, they also have great community, great sales, great brand ambassadors. Mm -hmm. So um, it's the understanding that uh, these sorts of audience companies may not look exactly like a typical, typical tech startup. So audience, I mean, does that mean it has to inevitably have subscriptions as an important part of the inevitable? I know you... I, I you do, do early stage, so it, it, the business model's in flux a little Business bit. model's always in flux. I guess I would say I, I tend to believe that the most successful businesses and um, will have uh, multiple legs of the revenue stool, and I think getting paid directly um, by your viewers, or in some cases, you know, a proxy, somebody who's paying on behalf of your user, your viewers, in the case of, you know, maybe some of the distribution yeah. models behind video. Starting the year with a bunch of money yeah. is, is usually, I think. Advertising, right. <laughs> uh, especially for your most dedicated audience, you know, your thousand true fans, advertising will always undervalue them. Um, and so as a brand, you want to have deeper relationships with them. There's other ways to, um, you know, Skim sort of started building their back on a uh, a newsletter, a daily newsletter that, uh, you know, millions and millions of people open each morning as part of their news diet. Um, once they built that, then they were able to roll out an app that's a $299 a month subscription. And that became an additional seven figure revenue stream. Um, and that was a you know, second leg of the stool. Okay. And, and with cheddar, eventually they're going to get paid for carriage. Yeah. I mean, I sort of, as you know, John, John's been on here and has told you, you know, he had some assumptions going in, you yes, know, he and, said them here and he said them here. And then, <laughs> and then, you know, then he changed, he was fortunate to be correct about the value of his content and then adaptive as to, um, where that value would come from over time. And for him, it's a scale game, right? I'm, uh, on, I think it was next, on August 1st, you know, they, they bought MTV, uh, 
university networks, the yeah. large, as he likes to say, the largest out of home set of screens, larger than uh, larger. Than I know. CNN I, jo- I joke with John all the time about when he's going to be on the uh, gas gas station pump. Yeah, screens. right. He's like, that's and a great he's idea. In. He's Take in. a note. He's Take a note. I can't wait. Um, and so, so, you know, in that case, um, I mean, we've known John since John worked at Google. We've known John since the Google days. And so, um, you know, we're, we're team, team market. We bet on people first. Um, we hold equity in companies, but we have to get up every morning and support people. And so, um, you know, I don't think it's a, I don't think it's a coincidence that the types of founders we backed, you know, are also the types of founders that appear on this podcast. Yeah. Um, give me the case for, for the skim and this audience based business. Sure. Um, so when we met them, three things clicked for us. Uh, the first was that product market fit I talked about. Uh, these were two women who were news junkies. In Silicon Valley, we use the word disruption a lot, overused. Um, I t- we talk about people who disrupt with love as opposed to contempt. Um, they are making change within their industry because they fundamentally love it and want that industry to be stronger, not because um, it's just a large market and there's money to be made. So Carly and Danielle, first and foremost, are news junkies. Um, the second was the audience. You know, women have been underserved uh, by media, especially when you talk about uh, news and not just sort of you know lifestyle. And the third was, and my partner uh, at Homebrew, Satch, and I saw this from our time at AdSense, my time at YouTube, his time at Twitter, how quickly new voices could aggregate audiences in a durable fashion. Um, and so starting with sort of an email blast from their contact list, um, you know, went from uh, a few thousand people to, to several million. Because of their audience, because of their connection with that audience, they have 30,000 ambassadors. Those are um, young women who are evangelists for the brand on campus is holding, you know, holding sip and skim parties. It's almost like multi-level marketing. You can think mm-hmm. about it. And because they started off with the idea of, um, how to help you live smarter, you can imagine how that brand promise expands outside of news, right? So, uh, when they recommend a book in their Friday newsletter, it jumps to the top of Amazon's, you know, bestsellers when they recommend, uh, you know, a wine, it sells out when they mm-hmm. educate people about finances, about health. Um, the skim app has a, a calendar, uh, integration that plans, you know, shows you things over the next 30 days that you should be interested in. So mm-hmm. when they're able to drop in, you know, on national breast cancer awareness day, a reminder for a mammography, you know, it brings people not just to, you know, click and order things for commerce, but to yeah. think about their health. It's audience like as a community, but those seem inevitably, I mean, obviously it's, it's more than half the human population, but generally these, <laughs> That's a good market these, to start with. these types of businesses end up being smaller than the, the giant scale businesses, which are just, you know, they end up becoming homogenized because they're going, they're trying to be everything to everyone. Mm-hmm. Not every, um, I am not a woman, uh, but you know, the skim is not for everyone. And I think mm-hmm. that's, it's, it's, it's power. Yeah. If you're going to, you're going to create a strong brand, a strong brand voice, you know, there's always going to be some folks who say this isn't for me and that's fine. I think if you look at, um, I guess, like, you know, Twitter reported earnings this morning, you do the numbers, they make a dollar seventy nine per monthly active. Yeah. Maybe that increases as you strip out the bots. But, um, and so the question is, how much do they make on the bots? <laughs> well, it depends whether what those bots are set up to do. Right. Um, so if you look at, uh, a, a dedicated, uh, skim reader who is spending 10 to 15 minutes with that newsletter every morning in a very intimate fashion, um, and who is using, uh, the skim increasingly as a starting point to make, uh, to get smarter and make choices, 
um, about their personal and professional lives. I think 50 plus percent of their audience makes more than $100,000 a year. The other 50% is aspiring professional. Um, you see any number of opportunities, uh, even if you just use as a proxy uh, what Google gets paid for, you know, AdWords clicks on mm -hmm. health, financial services, um, travel, lifestyle, commerce. You see plenty of opportunities, you know, to make multiples of that dollar seventy nine, you know, per user in ways that are consistent with the brand, additive to the user experience, uh, and ultimately in service of the woman, you know, as opposed to, um, you know, exploitive. So. Uh, we're very comfortable mm -hmm. with the idea of their growth. Okay, so those kind of businesses can work in a venture um, framework because we're coming out of an era where mm -hmm. um, venture, well, venture capitalists broadly stayed away from media. Yeah, for a let, long time. Uh, let, me say, uh, let me say the answer to that is absolutely with an asterisk. Uh, we were the first venture investor in the skim, and we were the only venture investor at the skim at the time because our colleagues didn't necessarily see the near term potential. Um, once that started to happen, then, then a venture capitalist needs to ask themselves, uh, what's the likely outcome here? And then what's the upside case? If you are a multi-billion dollar fund, which some of these, you know, some of, some of my peers now sit atop of, uh, media is a very hard business to get, you know, a fund returner on, right? So just as sort of, let's do a little math. Uh, I'm not sure everybody listening to this, like, you know, is, is immersed in venture capital. I hope most people aren't. It's not that interesting. Um, so a venture capitalist might own, let's say, 10 or 20% of a company when all is said and done. So if you own 10% of a company and you have a billion-dollar fund, what you're looking for is things that are, quote-unquote, fund returners, right? So it has to exit for— 200 million is not going to yeah, do it. It has to exit for $10 <laughs> billion. So your 10% of that is worth a billion dollars. And your goal as a venture capitalist is to get— 3x, 4x, 5x on the fund. The best, you know, routinely get 7, 9, 12x, right? So plug in the numbers behind an exit of Facebook, an exit of Snapchat, or, you know, mm -hmm. in the consumer space. Like, obviously, there's plenty of enterprise companies, you know, talking about all these different things. But, like, when you're talking about consumer properties, very, very few media companies over the last decade have exited at that scale. Mm -hmm. So when you look at some of the companies that have been awarded multi-billion dollar valuations by the private markets in the media space... Um, those have a very narrow line, <laughs> uh, the balance beam to sort of make it out and actually get liquidity at those levels as a, you know, our funds are under a hundred million dollars. So for us, um, a $300 million, $500 million, $750 million exit, um, for a company that has been capital efficient, um, can be the equivalent <laughs> of a Facebook, you know, mm -hmm. for a billion dollar fund. And that gives us some flexibility that, uh, right. That's what I mean. You maybe don't need the 500 a billion, million, you don't need a $2 billion exit. We have a definition of success that can be broader than a $2 billion exit. We don't, we, we, we always want to invest in people who we uh, think have a very high ceiling on their ambition and the outcome, but we don't have to implicitly or explicitly force their hand to define mm -hmm. what success looks like. And I think that's where the investor founder investor CEO relationship can sometimes go off the rails, which is the bigger, 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 faster, 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 but not necessarily durable, mm -hmm. <laughs> not necessarily, um, uh, staying true to the mission of the company, serving your audience in the most appropriate way possible. And, um, that's where, you know, you have the, the rocket that goes up, yeah. <laughs> then the jets, you know, sort of fail <laughs> and the rocket you know, comes back yeah. to earth. The Tuesday podcast will be right back after this break. 
Hi, I'm Shreen Patek, and if you enjoy the Digiday podcast, be sure to check out Making Marketing. Join me every Thursday as I sit down with a leader from the industry to discuss what it takes to make great marketing today. Each episode features candid conversation and insight into some of the brightest minds in marketing, including P&G's Mark Pritchard, HP's Antonio Lucio, and GE's Linda Boff. You can find Making Marketing on Digiday.com. We're also on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and Anchor.fm. I hope you'll listen. So will that have been a blip when we saw these gigantic funding rounds for the the, the Vice and BuzzFeed and Vox and a, a host of others? Um, because it seems very few of them are going to build billion-dollar-plus businesses. Well, I think it's interesting. Um, you know, a lot of the fund, you know, the first half of their fundings were venture-backed. The second half have been strategic, have been private equity, things that maybe have different goals in mind than just pure pure returns. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're NBC, Comcast, you're throwing off cash, you know, you're trying to look for growth businesses, you want an inside track, a sort of a, a call option on buying that business if it ends up doing well, then maybe you put, you know, $200 million against it. And, um, you know, the fact that the, you know, you somehow did that at a $2 billion valuation, who's to say, right? But eventually all these things sort of, you know, collide with public multiples. And, you know, if you look at the New York Times, if you look at yeah. Viacom, if you look at these other companies, they're not trading at, you know, a multiple to their revenue <laughs> that matches um, what some of these larger private companies have been given. And so either those public companies are worth a whole lot more <laughs> or these private companies better be growing faster, have different types of PLs, um, you know, be making a lot more off each set of eyeballs than the New York Times or Comcast is. Um, and you know, mm-hmm. I assume that those are the, those are the bets that people would make there. We're very comfortable betting on, you know, amazing teams with big ambition, but who are going to be, um, you know, very capital efficient and very revenue early. Yeah. Is our ad driven models like not cool now for startups? I think it's very hard to invest in a venture backed company that believes it's going to, um, plug-in ad models that turn are, on the revenue spigot. I used to, yeah, hear that. that are, yeah. Well here, if we get to this level <laughs> that we put a, in this CPM and you, you plugged in sort of a $25 CPM. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, show me the last venture startup that said they were going to use a programmatic ad model, you know, tap into, tap into ad networks, you know, yeah. to make their money, uh, compared to something like the athletic, you know, subscription based, right. Creating, you know, vertical, New sports newsletters, news sites, you know, for super fans of different teams, yeah. right? I'm so, interested in these media models that are almost like they look a lot like DTC companies mm-hmm. to me from the outside. Yeah, where you know, I mean, a core competency of, of every... is is absolutely customer acquisition, mm-hmm. um, and that's in DTC. It seems to me like the core competency of most of these companies almost it's is Instagram. not even the product. <laughs> it's it's yeah, it's Instagram acquisition. Yeah, we have a company called Lumi L U M I out of uh, L A that does a lot of the packaging work for these companies, and so we sort of get to see you know um, the the brand being built <laughs> you know in in cardboard and tissue paper uh, and 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 logo tape um, <laughs> uh, instead of you know storefronts. Um, yeah, look, I think that there's uh, there's there's in the entrepreneurship you know, area and in the venture market because they're very tied together, there's always a turn to the shiny thing, right? So um, what's, you know, what's buzzing around the Valley right now? Oh, for Fortnite, you know, have you, have you, can you imagine how much money they're making? And they're, you know, they're able to sell like a virtual skin, you know, for just your character wear for 1295. We have, you know, digital goods or, um, 
you know, synthetic media slash virtual celebrities, right? Little Michaela and, you know, what happens when uh, instead of the Kardashians, you essentially have, you know, CGI created celebrities and, you know, you never have to pay those people more than scale, you know, <laughs> the, uh, um, and so I think second life guys are kicking se- themselves. Well, I, Although they and, ended and up I'm, doing and okay I'm a second business. life guy. Oh, really? You didn't know that? No, I didn't know this. Um, so to, that was my job before Google. I was the oh. non-engineer on the team that built Second Life. I went to a press conference on Dell Island. Oh, yes. Yes. They, I, I have when an they avatar. Made his co- I don't know what's happening made to my his avatar. college room. Yeah. I don't know what's happening to my avatar well, on Second Life. Uh, let, me just, let me just clarify. Second Life is a, now an 18-year-old profitable ongoing business. Uh, I've gotten dividends a few times, so it's made more money than most, most startups. But it was possibly <laughs> a little early. Yeah. I, look, I draw lines <laughs> from that and say what was the opportunity there, and the opportunity there looks more like Minecraft, right? Like somebody who got right the creative, constructive notion of the world and didn't worry about sort of the uncanny valley of you know, getting photorealistic avatars correct. <laughs> Right. Final thing is with the power of the platforms, is that having a negative impact that that you see in the trenches with entrepreneurship? Because, you know, there's there's one school of thought that, look, we've seen like powerful technology companies and they don't always stay powerful. There's not a school of thought that, no, this time it's different. So despite my geeky exterior, I'm actually a liberal arts grad at heart. I went to Vassar. I was a history major. Um, and so sometimes I look backwards to you know, answer the, the questions of looking forward. And at every point in history, there was some set of incumbents that seemed like they were impenetrable. Uh, they were going to dominate you know, their landscape forever. And you know, most of those are, are, are bankrupt these days. Um, in this case, what's the argument to say that like we're dealing with a different, you know, evolved animal right now. Well, the network's effect of data, these companies are throwing up so much cash that they can reinvest into adjacencies. Google's not just a search engine, Google's a health company, Google's a logistics company, you know, Google, Google's fundamentally a data company. Um, uh, and, uh, Although they make all their money off search. They make all their money off search. And they're, and they're smarter. They all read Clay Christensen, right? So they know <laughs> now how to disrupt themselves versus, you know, wait for the low-cost provider to come into the space. That's the argument to say, my LPs, instead of giving me money, should just be uh, dumping into the public markets and buying Amazon, Google, Netflix, and that's where the returns are continue to be. But history suggests that entrepreneurs who are singularly focused, who are early or contrarian, and who believe that uh, you know, there's going to be a new way of doing things and have the aptitude and attitude to build something that matches the vision they have in their head will always have the ability to create value. And uh, you, know, you just need to look at the last 10 years of Uber, Airbnb, you know, sort of these transactional companies that have built businesses, you know, WeWork, uh, you know, in that are now worth the tens of billions of dollars or in the pipeline uh, to go public, uh, Slack, uh, you know, the fastest growing SaaS company in history, I guess, you know, uh, is using an enterprise chat product, but you know, but wait, doesn't Microsoft already provide that? Doesn't Google provide that for free? So I tend to believe that, uh, sometimes it can be difficult to attack the incumbents on their home turf. I'm not sure I would fund a company that was trying to be Google at search or Facebook at feed or Instagram, you know, at photos, but we, we now hold devices in our hands, you know, that are literally super, you know, always on supercomputers. Um, every other device that didn't have software running through it is increasingly having software run through it. And to me, that opens up much, mm-hmm. much larger markets um, than any of the ones that these companies have, have touched yet. And so that's where we invest. Are you sympathetic to Mark Zuckerberg's view that 
if you tie down Facebook with regulations here and in Europe, that that's just going to give an opportunity to Chinese companies that are already gigantic to um, take that role. I'm sympathetic to the argument that if you try to legislate what companies can or cannot do um, ahead of them trying to do those things, you underserve the consumer. And I think that's what fundamentally matters. I, I if, if you can't figure out how to allow these companies to experiment with what, you know, what they could create and then give people the chance to adopt them or not, um, you know, you're shrinking the GDP because you're taking things out of people's hands that they'd otherwise, otherwise want to buy and use. If it turns out then that, you know, uh, as opposed to, you know, helping a startup, you're helping, you know, another country build those products in a global economy, then, then sure. But I think of it more as independent of whether, you know, there's a China story or not, um, you know, are, are you, are you expanding the economy or contracting the economy? Now I do think regulators have, um, uh, roles and responsibilities, uh, in this world, uh, in this tech world. Um, but I'm not sure it's about locking down data, you know, in advance of, mm-hmm. um, you know, giving entrepreneurs and engineers, um, the ability to take, you know, take their products into the marketplace and see what happens. Right. I know Be- people complain about, uh, you know, the duopoly making decisions, but I'm not sure if they want um, Jeff Sessions uh, <laughs> making the decisions for the market. Uh, yeah, that's. Uh, yeah. Uh, we could do another podcast about the politics of Silicon Valley, uh, and uh, uh, sometimes, sometimes interesting, uh, sometimes progressive, sometimes challenging. All right, we'll come back for that, Hunter. Uh, I will uh, look forward to the uh, the spinoff uh, of the Digiday Pod. Okay, thanks. Thank you, and thank you all for listening. This show is produced by Aditi Sangal. If you liked our show, please subscribe. We are on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, and Anchor.fm. And please leave us a comment. We always like to get comments. We'll be back next week with a new episode.